Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, we were joined by Matthew Commons, the president of the Verified USD Foundation, a nonprofit accountable for USDV, a community-based native omni-chain stablecoin. Topics of discussion included Matthew's background in identity management and compliance software solutions for financial institutions, and how that carries over into his work with the Verified USD Foundation, building alongside and within other decentralized ecosystems, the types of assets that are backing the USDV stablecoin, growth since the protocol's soft launch in Q4 of 2023, and so much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, and that nothing should be taken as financial advice. The host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode, and feel free to head over to the neonewstoday.com webpage to learn more about a disclaimer for more information on the tokens we hold. With that said, I really enjoyed this conversation with Matthew, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Matthew Commons, the president of the Verified USD Foundation. Verified USD Foundation is a nonprofit accountable for the USDV token, which is a community-based native omni-chain stablecoin. How are you doing today, Matthew? I'm doing great, Dylan. Glad to be here. I'm super excited to have you here. Stablecoins in particularly the past quarter or two have kind of become an interest of mine or a focal point as we've seen the quote-unquote biggest used stablecoins being Circle and Tether showing prominence, particularly during the recent bear market of the past couple of years. It seems from the outside that a lot of folks have trusted these two entities as the market share for users has grown. So I kind of want to kick off the conversation with a higher level philosophical kind of perspective that you bring to the table. And I just want to know, what do you, as the president of the Verified USD Foundation, how do you view the opportunities and strengths for quote-unquote non-traditional stable coins? How do you view these opportunities in the coming years and the opportunities that they'll have to compete with the market share that Circle and Tether have today? Yeah, I'd be happy to answer that, Dylan. I think there's a few different areas where actually applying some new technology can bring us towards more of a next generation stablecoin. And that's really what we're trying to do here at at USDV. We see ourselves kind of at the vanguard of this. You know, certainly the stablecoins that have been out there for the past five or so years have done a lot to get on multiple chains, to get out there in the public, to build perspective on what a stablecoin is. When we look at the future, I think one of the biggest questions is, do we want the future to be set up by really centralized entities issuing stablecoins, or do we want to have a technology architecture that is really all about decentralization and not having one entity just at the center of the ecosystem? So right now we have two big players right there. There are others out there. You know, There's PayPal coming up with their PYUSD and a few others. But as you say, largely, there's been these two firms that have dominated it to date. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for providing your perspective and also to help us jump into this conversation. I'm actually really fascinated by your background and the places you've been and where you're at today and where you're going to be going. It seems like you kind of got bit by the blockchain crypto bug in 2015. 
So I'm curious to hear, when was the first time you heard about crypto or blockchain or Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these things? And what were your initial thoughts on this digital asset class? Yeah, you know, I had read about it in, I don't know, the FT and other types of things. I'd, I'd seen it out there in the years, you know, around the white paper and the coming up shortly thereafter. It was actually at a Harvard alumni event in London where I met uh, this guy, Michael Minnelli, who is now the Lord Mayor of London. And we had a chat and he actually walked through with me really some of the details of what comes behind here. You know, the idea of uh, public-private key pairs and the idea of chaining proofs and so forth. And I immediately saw that this could be much more than just Bitcoin. I saw Bitcoin itself as something kind of interesting I wanted to learn more about. But uh, that started off a journey of just diving into it, going to meetups, and eventually founding my own company, Cambridge Blockchain, in 2015. Yeah, I can't wait to dig into Cambridge, but I do kind of want to hear what was that aha moment that led you to saying, okay, I need to get into the space and I want to found Cambridge systems. So the aha moment was really trying to think through like, how would you devise a business strategy in a decentralized world? And when you think about this, everything that I had learned in school and looking at case studies and so forth assumes you just have centralized companies controlling resources. And I was really intrigued by the idea of an open architecture and what that means. Like, how do you win in something like this? You know, it ties in a lot with areas like open source and different types of governance models and so forth. But, you know, really start going down the rabbit hole. And it's been a learning experience. You know, there's definitely been things in my thought process that have evolved over time from back in 2013, 2014, 2015, when I kind of got started here. Yeah. So your path is similar to mine in the fact that we were in a different career, a different industry. And then we decided to pull the ripcord and go into crypto and blockchain. So there must have been kind of a powerful draw to take you away from the oil power and utilities markets into the crypto space. So having brought that experience in the power and utility sector, you've also been able to, during your time in the crypto space, work alongside big fintech names and tradfi names like PayPal and Goldman Sachs, for example. So when you're taking this experience of working with larger scale kind of corporate type entities and then also working with big fintech and TradFi, from your experience, what are some of the things that these folks really care about when they start exploring the Web3 and crypto space? Yeah, well, you know, I will say that it's kind of taken a little bit longer for some of these big enterprises to get moving in the space than some of us had hoped. You know, I think back when we were starting exploring this, you know, had no problems getting meetings with the most senior people at the biggest banks back in, you know, 2014, 2015. Everyone was very curious. But we were trying to start a small software company at the MIT Media Lab and actually sell something. But a lot of what we were seeing across the table was more of what I would call a tech safari. They were like, get these blockchain guys in here and have them, you know, present to the board and we'll see what they can do. And, you know, they have made progress. You know, even JP Morgan, who, you know, you'll see Jamie Dimon talking with Elizabeth Warren about the government and so forth. They have continued to invest. They've continued to make progress. And, you know, maybe not as fast as we would have hoped. But this is definitely something that the TradFi space sees as real, sees as something they want to get involved with. You can see it in the Bitcoin and Ether ETFs and so forth. But they're still kind of figuring out exactly how to engage with it. And I think you're seeing that today. So, you know, it makes sense to engage with regulators. It makes sense to engage with the big players. But really, where my career has evolved is to say that the growth is in the permissionless space, the growth is in the L1s, the L2s, 
something that is borderless and will interface with the big players where appropriate, but we're not going to sort of stage gate our development based on that. Yeah. And so you mentioned MIT and, and I believe in digging through your background, you were also an adjunct professor at one of the universities in the Northeast. So I guess I'm just kind of curious to hear if you're still involved in the universities, what is the outlook that students and professors have in this field? And if you're not involved with the universities, what's kind of the regional outlook that you're viewing amongst your peers who are building in the Northeast? Sure. The university space is kind of interesting. Like in anything, there are waves of interest that you see. When I first was interested in starting Cambridge Blockchain, I actually was looking at doing some work at Harvard where I'd, I'd gone to school and so forth. And I tried to pitch them on this whole blockchain research project. And back then, I just got a lot of stares. People didn't quite know what it was. And I, I didn't really get as much traction. So with that, I said, well, look, if I want to pursue this, I got to just start it myself. And I pursued that. I think you've seen a lot of student interest come around and there's a huge amount of innovation that comes out of there. You know, living in the Boston, Cambridge area, there's many great universities here and it's excellent to have that. More recently, I've been involved on some of the fundamental research side, really digging into zero knowledge technology and other things. So I think for certain types of applications, especially advanced cryptography and so forth, you've got to be in with those math departments, people studying graph theory, all kinds of things like that. And it's got to be wherever they are. Boston's great, but you know, people from Hebrew University, CU, you know, wherever it is, you got to be focused on it and go to where the talent is. So you co-founded Cambridge Blockchain, and apologies for misnaming that early in our conversation. So Cambridge Blockchain initially focused on developing blockchain-based identity manage and compliance software solutions for financial institutions. You also just mentioned zero-knowledge proofs and things of this nature. So what were kind of the initial solutions that Cambridge Blockchain was building out for your clients? And how might that have evolved and grown over the years when you were in charge of that entity? Sure, absolutely. So early on, my co-founders and I decided to focus on the intersection of blockchain and digital identity. And Cambridge Blockchain was our effort to do that. We focused initially on sharing identity and KYC data across groups of banks. Early on, we were part of the New York FinTech Innovation Lab. We did you know, early engagements with banks like Citi and JP Morgan. We ended up getting more traction over in Europe because right around that time, Europe was launching GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. So this idea of users controlling their own identity and data was something that was just easier to sell across the Atlantic. So moved over to France. We deployed with our partner in Luxembourg, a company called LuxTrust, which is a consortium of banks together with the Luxembourg government, are really all about creating a KYC passport, the ability to onboard with one institution, take your credentials to another. We then became PayPal's first investment in the crypto space and took that from there. So it's been a journey. And, you know, I think that also taught me that working with some of these big institutions, setting up consortium enterprise blockchains, that is a lot of potential. There's going to be growth there, but it is also something that can be a bit slower than the rapid pace of innovation that you see on the permissionless side. So I've kind of shifted my career from more of the enterprise to more of the open architectures. Nice. So I'm curious to hear then, you guys tuned in to the market demand that Europe offered or the European banks when they were seeking these solutions. Are you feeling that that sort of yearn and drive that European institutions had those few years ago, are you feeling that sort of drive here in the States or is it 
a sort of different conversation you're having with stateside-based financial institutions? Well, you know, what's so fascinating about the blockchain space is that unlike almost any other market, it is just a truly global market. It is just open. You want to get the best talent you can from wherever. You know, if you're looking at the code contributors to a repo, it really doesn't matter where they're from. It's do they have the credibility and is it something that the community is going to trust? So as someone who studied international business, even in undergrad, this is like the most international space that you can be. And it's exciting to see teams collaborate around the world. I mean, right now at the Verified USD Foundation, we have the support of Matrixport with a lot of activity in Singapore and Hong Kong. Layer Zero, who is based in Vancouver, but they have people all around the world, included in Europe and elsewhere. And we're looking at opportunities really everywhere in principle. I mean, certainly some markets will adapt more than others. You know, I'd say probably the biggest area of difference between the U.S. and other places is really more on the regulatory side, that there is just more regulatory certainty in other jurisdictions. That certainly includes stable coins, but it also includes crypto as well. I mean, whether it's you're talking about Mika in Europe or the Singapore bill around stable coins or other types of things, innovation happens where there's a regulatory framework that fosters that. And it's been challenging in the U.S. So I think that's one of the biggest things that we see. Yeah, this past week, I was in D.C. advocating for sensible crypto legislation alongside Coinbase and Stand With Crypto. And last month, I was actually in Hong Kong and speaking with legislators about sensible legislation for USD-backed stablecoins and RWA, real-world asset-backed assets, leveraging things like treasury bills. So we've kind of seen this odd international adoption of bringing America-based assets on chain. And so it feels a little bit backwards sometimes, but I definitely think that we're heading in the right direction with things like Fit21 and other stablecoin legislation that's starting to make its way through Congress. So I think you also have some broader expertise and experience that also lends some comprehensive knowledge to the potential growth that Verified USD Foundation can bring in terms of stablecoins, not only in the US and in the rest of the world. So I'm just curious to hear in the quarter of time that you spent at the foundation, how has some of your other executive advisory work with entities like Ledger, Node40, and Focal, how has that enabled you to progress the vision for bringing an omni-chain stablecoin backed by RWAs. How does that kind of empower you and your position now? Yeah. Well, first of all, I love the tech. I, you know, I'm not formally an engineer by training, although I've taken some math and computer science along the way, but I, I just love to dive in. You know, one of my recent roles was at Algorand. So working with Professor McKaylee, who was one of the inventors of zero knowledge cryptography, was just amazing. You know, working with companies like Ledger, you know, really getting into the hardware side of how do you store these keys and, you know, how can you attack and so forth. It's really fascinating. I love spending time with that. I actually have to check myself. Sometimes I'll be on diligence calls or I'm supposed to be doing something like business oriented and I'll just go down the rabbit hole on how the tech works. And then we'll get to the end of the hour and I haven't asked like the more kind of business and strategy questions, which are, of course, important and what I'm, I'm supposed to be there for in many cases. But I love the tech side. And spending time with this, you know, you just kind of get to absorb the different approaches that are out there. There's so much that we're seeing now. What I really like about the Verified USD Foundation is that we're an omni-chain stablecoin. So we're launching on five chains, EVM-compatible chains, L1s, including 
Ethereum mainnet, BSC, Avalanche, but then also L2s like Arbitrum and Optimism and going to many more. So I really love that I don't have to kind of pick the winning technology because I don't think there's going to be one chain to rule them all. You know, I think that different chains will have different approaches. And being able to spend time throughout my career across different players working on different things helps give me that perspective and at least kind of know how are we going to integrate with chain XYZ and how does this work? So that's been really encouraging. And certainly Layer Zero, who was our technology partner, has a lot of amazingly innovative technologies that we're putting to work here and excited to be partnered with them in Matrixport to, to spur our growth. Yeah, that's very exciting. And the previous role you were filling was CFO for Algorand. So it really is interesting to kind of have this engagement and experience with being in this type of role for a decentralized protocol. I am curious to hear, what are your perspectives on the scale of centralization to decentralization? Where do you view the Verified USD Foundation being? And maybe we can use as context, maybe like Tether being the most centralized to the now defunct Luna Terra UST being the most decentralized. Where do you view Verified USD Foundation on that scale? Yeah, well, there's a whole number of issues that are kind of wrapped up in that whole comparison there. Centralization, decentralization just being one of them. But, you know, to answer your question directly, the Verified USD Foundation is an entity, but we're a foundation. So we're not a private entity. We're a foundation. We exist to sort of steward the ecosystem. And we actually don't mint the USDV token ourselves. What we do is we allow other what we call verified minters. In many cases, these are centralized exchanges like BitGet or decentralized protocols like SushiSwap or Curve or OTC desks like Wintermute to actually become minters themselves. And they're the ones that bring USDV into existence. They're the ones that post the collateral, which is essentially short-term treasury bills and treasury repos. And when they mint these tokens, the USDV is completely fungible, whether it's minted by Wintermute or Curve or whoever. But we keep track of who minted what through something called a color trace. And that allows us to share the rewards on the underlying collateral with the partners that are facilitating the ecosystem. And that's something that is fundamentally much more decentralized than having a single private entity sitting at the middle. And you just have to sort of trust that entity. Yeah, Color Trace sounds really fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to digging into that. But before we kind of go into the USDV and the other work that the Verified USD Foundation is doing, I am just kind of curious to hear your perspective. I did mention earlier in our conversation that stablecoins have kind of rose to the prominence on what I view as one of the most used assets in the crypto space in general. So I'm curious to hear from your perspective, you chose to work at this foundation. So clearly, you have a strong opinion about stablecoins. What's the broader impact that stablecoins are going to have in the crypto and blockchain ecosystem? And maybe this is a bit of a spicy question, but do you think that they're going to have more of a relevancy for traditional asset institutions and the next wave of 1 billion users than, say, Bitcoin, Ethereum, or other crypto-native assets? Yeah, broader adoption is definitely where we're headed. I'm not the person to say, is Bitcoin going to a million dollars, or is it not, or whatever. That's not my role. And I love the people that are like, Bitcoin's going to a million dollars, but I'm not buying call options at a million dollars necessarily, You know, but they may make a lot of money. My perspective is really, looking at stablecoins, there is a role for stablecoins to play. 
Right now, we had our soft launch. We're starting on a few centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, and we're growing. But we're really setting the architecture to plug into an increasing number of chains. Layer Zero connects to over 40 chains right now. So we have our five launch chains, but there'll be many more to come. And we see that with the increasing power of different blockchains, L1s, L2s, sidechains, etc., and lower cost and higher degrees of security, that this is really what's going to push stablecoin adoption generally, but also crypto, broadly speaking, into that next billion people, into emerging markets and so forth. So we're really spending a lot of our time at the foundation thinking about kind of the medium and longer term, which goes well beyond just CFI and DeFi. And you know, people using this as real money, people using this as stores of value and so forth. And it's really about enabling other partners around the world to do this. I mean, there are chains that are focused on the Vietnamese market and other areas, and we're never going to become the experts in that. But our role is really to enable others to catalyze that growth and to be able to share the rewards and upside with them. Yeah. So you've mentioned Layer Zero a couple of times, which is a cross-chain messaging solution. So just curious to hear from the Verified USD Foundation's perspective, why did your team opt to partner with an entity that's specializing in cross-chain messaging as opposed to building this sort of infrastructure internally? Yeah, I think there, there are two key technologies that we license from Layer Zero. One is the Omnichain Fungible Token standard, which allows us to mint natively on the first five chains, but then on many others. So the mint burn functionality is not controlled by a centralized institution. It is really baked into the smart contract of the code itself. And then the other one, as you mentioned already, is Color Trace, which allows us to track who minted what tokens and be able to share rewards across the ecosystem. So Layer Zero is a you know, phenomenal technical team. I've known Brian Pellegrino and the team for a number of years. I was a reviewer on their original white paper and you know, really very early on saw that these guys were the real deal. I remember being, yeah, this is when I was living in Paris and I was at a bank in Switzerland and I was supposed to fly home to my family in Paris. And I heard that Brian Pellegrino and Raz were coming to the Solana conference in Lisbon. I'm just like, I got to meet with them. I'd, I'd had a bunch of conversations. I'd read the white paper. Now I was like, okay, they're on the continent. I just got to be there. I called my wife. I'm like, I got to get there. These guys are the real deal and have kind of stayed in touch, followed them for the past few years. And when the opportunity came to collaborate on this, it was something I couldn't turn down. Certainly, I'd heard a lot about Matrix Port before and bringing them into the partners. Those are kind of the two key contributors to the foundation right now that got us with the initial technology. And now we have 25 plus partners that are our launch partners and mentors with us right now. Yeah, Layer Zero is kind of the go-to right now. Their team has really built out a lot of strong infrastructure. So it's kind of cool to hear that you have this very personal sort of relationship with the entity and alongside, you know, just using a really good infrastructure for what you guys are building with USDV. So what backs USDV? What are the real world assets that you guys are looking into and maybe you can talk about the current assets that are backing the stablecoin. And also, you don't have to necessarily say which ones are next, but what are the types of real-world assets that you and your team are examining when leveraging these new stablecoins and what is securing them or ensuring that there is something that they can be redeemed for? Yeah, absolutely. So USDV's role in the ecosystem is we facilitate this, we set the standards for what we will accept as collateral. And the initial collateral that we accept is 
short-term treasury bills and extremely short-term, actually overnight treasury agreements called repo agreements. And those are in the form of a token that is issued by a matrix port affiliate called STBT, short-term treasury bill. This is a interest-bearing security. It is only available to non-US KYC investors that go through a robust compliance process, but it's a real-world asset. There's you know over 100 million in circulation now, and verified minters can acquire or purchase the STBT treasury bill tokens, lock it up in our smart contract on Ethereum mainnet, and then issue USDV backed one for one in their respective colors. So this is something where anybody can go on to Dune or our smart contract at any time, and they can see exactly what is standing behind this. So, you know, it's not just, hey, we got an annual audit or something like that saying what we had in the bank. This is something that participants can go in real time, and essentially the collateral is on chain. So as we look towards the future, we certainly could look at it. We intend to look at other forms of collateral that are short-term treasuries, essentially. We're not at this point looking at extending the risk profile further on the yield curve or with any other assets besides that. But there could be other tokens in time. There could be other things that we look at in time. But that's where we're starting. We think it's really critical for trust and transparency to be able to have that. I'm not a macro expert, but I do remember in 2020, there was an issue with liquidity and repo markets. So what are the kind of defense mechanisms that the foundation has taken against maybe short-term volatility in these markets? And is the short-term T-bill markets enough to act as a hedge against any short-term volatility in the repo markets? Yeah, you know, right now we have a mix of assets that are in there and there's a redemption process, there's a redemption queue. And I think some of the way that it works is actually just in the interest rating. If you look at STBT, you'll see that the rate does fluctuate a bit on a day-to-day basis. It rebases daily, but you can get in and out of it even on weekends. And that's something that by focused where we are on the very short end of the curve, there's just a lot of liquidity out there. So even if there were a huge amount of redemptions in a short period of time, there wouldn't be any issue with meeting those. And from the USDV user perspective, there's very liquid markets for USDV to other stable coins, USDV into STBT. Again, if you're on the whitelist and, and KYC to be able to own STBT. So that's something that's really critically important. Users need to know that they can get their USDV to any chain that they want and that they can get in and out of that, whether to the underlying asset or to other digital assets. Yeah, and I definitely want to dig into the different types of chains that are interoperable with USDV, but just one more higher level, kind of 10,000 foot level question. I just want to get a baseline of your perspective. So there are fiat-backed stablecoins, crypto-backed stablecoins, and over-collateralized stablecoins. And each of them have kind of had their time in the spotlight. And I've also faced adversity. So what is your perspective of these classes of stablecoins? Is there a role for each? And I'm sure I can probably deduce what your answer will be, but what is the USD Foundation view as the most instrumental? Yeah, I mean, we're clear on what our role is in the ecosystem is that we are the issuer of a highly liquid, fully backed stablecoin with on-chain transparency and underlying treasury repose and so forth. So participants that acquire USDV or use USDV, that's what they're getting. There's definitely a role for others as well. I think you'll see that Frax actually is one of our launch partners. So many of these other types of stable coins that have other 
backing that is not just treasury bills or it's over collateralized or it's multiple different asset classes. You know, we're very excited to partner with them and have USDV be part of the asset base that they're working with. So that's one of the things that we're doing with Racks. But there are other things that you can do with these other things, you know, whether you look at uh, you know, MakerDAO and DAI, they do fulfill a bit of a different role in a particular DeFi ecosystem, one that you know, certainly can be quite valid for users that are looking for that. So we view them more as collaborators than kind of competition or anything like that. That's really interesting. Do you kind of get the sense that the various different types of stablecoin projects are viewing one another as collaborators rather than competition? Or is this just a phenomenon you've experienced with a few of the partners that you're working with that aren't necessarily doing RWA-backed stables? Yeah, I mean, in the blockchain space and in the software internet space generally, protocols should be able to talk to each other, right? So I think everyone has an interest in facilitating smooth rails and communication, especially with the examples that I mentioned. We definitely view them as collaborators rather than anything else. You know, part of what the Verified USD Foundation is, again, we're not a private entity that is looking to capture and make a lot of money. We don't have shareholders. We don't pay dividends or anything like that. We're all about facilitating the ecosystem. And what we view as success is getting more mentors signed up through our onboarding process and getting them to be issuing in, in areas that they have their respective strengths. So it's really something that is all about collaboration and community. And we see that as very aligned with the whole ethos of our space. And where is the Verified USD Foundation based out of? What's the jurisdiction that the team chose to operate under? Yeah, so we're based out of Cayman. So I head down to Cayman periodically, multiple times throughout the year. And there's actually quite a good ecosystem there in terms of not just the financial space, but also in terms of the technology space that's there. It's one of the areas where you do have a clear regulatory framework. I mean, you do have good relations with countries around the world, including Asia and Europe and elsewhere. So it's one where we do have a local team down there. We have local partners. It's just a good place to be. So with USDV, there are three different types of contributors to the ecosystem. There's the verified mentor, the operator, and the liquidity provider. Can you expand a little bit more on the roles of each and how they participate within the USDV umbrella? Yeah, absolutely. So the verified mentor, those are the ones where there's the largest number of them and where we expect the largest amount of growth. So these are initially CFI and DeFi protocols, in some cases, OTC desks as well. And eventually, as we get into this more as payments and so forth, we expect other fintechs and other entities that can do that. So those are the ones that acquire STBT, are able to lock that up and mint USDV in their own color and receive rewards based on it. The operator, right now we work very closely with a Matrix Port Affiliate as part of that. They're bringing a lot of their skills to the table. And that makes sense because at least right now where we're starting with STBT, everyone that is a verified mentor has to first go through Matrix Port's own compliance process before they go through our compliance process. So it's really something that we take quite seriously. And then liquidity provider, that role is about making sure that, especially in the early days here where we're launching, we're just lighting up new chains and so forth. We really want users to be able to make sure that they can get in and out of the USDV with very tight spreads. Not to say that we're going to have liquidity providers that are super active on every single DEX, on every single chain all the time, but there will be certain points where there is a lot of liquidity Right now, if you just look at the volumes, BitGet is the biggest centralized exchange, and then Curve 
as the biggest decentralized exchange for getting in and out of USDV. But there are others as well, and we want to be making sure that users have the confidence that they can get in and out of the asset with ease. So one of the things I've really respected about the Bitcoin protocol development is that it is so slow to upgrade. And, and I believe that's a feature, not a bug. So what does USDV expansion look like? Are you guys slowly picking which partners, which exchanges, both DEX and centralized that you're working with? What's kind of the ethos or the philosophy for expanding the growth and use of USDV? Sure. So we called our launch last month a soft launch. And there's a reason for that, because it does take time. You know, it takes time to light up more chains. It takes time to get history. It takes time to get oracles. You know, a lot of times there's just fixed requirements of you need a certain number of weeks of data at certain volumes in order to do this. So it is an incremental process. You know, launching a stable coin across even five chains, which we're doing now, is not an insignificant feat. So it, it is something that you must proceed incrementally if you're going to do it well. So, you know, without kind of pre-releasing certain things, I'd say to look at where we're going to go, to start, look at the 40 plus chains where layer zero is right now, you know, so those are the chains where layer zero is already connected and incrementally, it's a lot easier to add those. Certainly ones that are EVM, it's much more of a standard playbook to do that. So it's just sort of a lower bar from a technical perspective to get on there. But there's plenty of other non-EVM chains that layer zero is connected to and ones that we're talking to about them connecting to over the coming months. So that's really key. We are pretty actively in discussions with a number of different major DEXs and centralized exchanges. Again, some of these is just a question. They say, hey, you need a certain amount of time and a certain amount of volume and so forth, and then we can list you or partner with you or so forth. But the partnership is pretty standard. Every minter essentially has the same type of minting agreement with the foundation. So that makes negotiation relatively easy. And then, you know, a lot of times we'll collaborate, you know, you'll look at, especially some of these DEXs, there's some pretty attractive initial incentives out there. So the foundation can be involved in supporting emissions and so forth early on in the process, which is just kind of naturally what drives some of the use in these things. But as we get out of the first few months, I think you'll see much more organic growth and some pretty innovative use cases as we expand to chains beyond the first five. Yeah. And in the first month, month and a half of the soft launch, how much liquidity has USDV been able to accrue or release into the wild? Yeah. So as of today, let me see, I think we've got like 17 million, I think uh, right there, a little over 17 million of USDV issued, which is essentially locked short-term treasury bill. The STBT token itself, which is kind of the broader asset base is about 108 million, I believe, as of today. So I think you should probably expect both of those to be going up over time. Again, it's a soft launch. It's incremental. You know, you need to do this. But these things build on, the, on itself. You know, as we get oracles lit up, as we get new DeFi protocols involved, as we get more volumes, then that's what we see. But ultimately, the number to focus on is not so much where we are right now in terms of five chains and 17 point whatever million, but really how is the architecture built for scale and to enable others to drive the growth of this ecosystem? And, and that's what we're really focused on. That's a really interesting concept you just brought up, scaling. So what are some of the scaling pitfalls that Verified USD Foundation is really studying and observing to ensure that USDV doesn't fall into those kind of traps? 
Yeah, well, compliance is one. You know, one of the things that was really important throughout the interview process and so forth to come on here was the fact that I had worked. And in fact, Cambridge Blockchain itself was really at its core a compliance company. It was about sharing KYC data and so forth. And while USDV itself is a permissionless token, you know, anybody can buy or sell or transfer it. STBT itself in the process of becoming a verified minter does go through a fairly rigorous compliance process, including enhanced due diligence and on-chain transaction checks and so forth. So that was really important to me to make sure that we're doing compliance right. And then it's all about the growth path and setting things up. I mean, right now, there's a lot of draft stablecoin regulation on the books, like in the bill form, but it's not law yet. So, you know, what we're doing now is really benchmarking against this draft legislation that is out there. You know, where are we? What are the laws saying? How do we think about that? And you've certainly seen other stable coins get into issues, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere. So that's something that we pay a lot of attention to. We really try to do things the right way. And that's important for our user base as well. You know, our user base doesn't want us to be doing things that are in an area that is putting the protocol or some of our key partners at risk. Yeah. Do you have a sense for what your geographic region, your user base is currently? I know that you might not be able to determine these things with only six to eight weeks of data under your belt, but kind of at the onset, do you just kind of have a good understanding of who your users are by geographic region? Yeah. So what's really fascinating is that we're able to leverage the relationships of both layer zero, which is incredibly strong in the DEX community and across cross chains there, as well as Matrixport, which has a lot of relationships. Obviously, they're headquartered in Singapore, have activities in Hong Kong, Thailand, other places. So a lot of centralized exchanges, especially ones that have more of an Asian footprint. So that's kind of where we're starting. I mean, it's the centralized and decentralized exchanges and, you know, the respective user bases, which curve might be different than BitGet and so forth. And you can kind of, yeah, I'd say we're broadly representative of what our individual minters are. But when we look at the growth of this, and especially what the foundation is really focused on, is that meeting the long-term roadmap. And that is really using USDV not just as sort of an intermediary token to get out of one crypto or another to pick up an interesting yield opportunity, but really using this as money. In two weeks, I'm going down to Buenos Aires and going to be meeting with a number of market participants there. And some of these things, it's an incredibly dynamic market down there. I mean, this is a market that 10% of the whole US currency in the world, the physical currency is in Argentina. You know, people buy houses with stacks of $100 bills and stable coins are a real thing. This is where in the wild, people are using stable coins as part of their everyday life. And it is essential to what they're doing. So that's as an example of markets where we want to be, you know, we want to figure out the right partners. We want to figure out the right chains, figure out the right pieces to do that. And, you know, the incoming president, he's got a lot on his plate for sure, but these are market dynamics and frankly, opportunities that are unlike others in the world. So I would say emerging markets and especially economies where there may be some limitations with the domestic currency, whether through inflation or limitations on the conventional banking sector, I think provide some unique opportunities for stablecoins generally and USDB in particular. Yeah, there was just a major Ethereum developers conference that took place in Turkey either last week or the week before. And in listening to some of the podcasts, one of the most interesting concepts that stuck out to me is that there was an equally easy way to spend the local currency as there was to spend Tether on the Tron network. So we're really starting to see how 
US-backed stablecoins are becoming prominent in emerging economies and on networks that your average blockchain maximalists wouldn't have ever suspected. So you guys mentioned that there are multiple different networks that USD lives on and that they're largely determined by who you can connect with via layer zero. But the Verified USD Foundation did opt to build on Ethereum, Optimism, BSC, Arbitrum, and Avalanche first. How did the team arrive at these first five networks to build on top of? So they're all EVM compatible. So you know when we look at expanding to marginal chain A, B, C, D, E, F, G, EVM chains that are already connected to layer zero just have a lower bar to connect to than others. A lot of it's partner driven. You know, if you look at our partner list in terms of Curve, SushiSwap, Wombat, Maverick, Trader Joe, Velodrome, you know, a lot of this were driven by places where we were able to get good partnership relationships and we want to be on the chains where they're active. But there's also other opportunities looking at it. You mentioned Tron in Turkey, but there are other chains that have kind of surprising level of adoptions or even ones that are really, hey, this one is kind of known in Southeast Asia and not so much beyond there, but hey, if they meet the right specs and they can get through layer zero security review and so forth, you know, those are things that we will absolutely look at. But, you know, key are the partnership discussions, right? I mean, chain A versus chain B, provided that they have the adequate security and we're able to do it in a compliant way, ones where there's more partners earlier on are ones that are going to be earlier in the queue. Can a fiat-backed stablecoin be truly decentralized if it's only beholden to EVM-based networks? My non-answer to that is that we don't intend to be just sticking with EVM-based networks. We're on EVM-based networks today, and certainly incrementally, it's easier to add. But, you know, look at those 40 chains that Layer Zero is on, you'll see a lot of non-EVMs there. And there's a lot of others that are in the works. Obviously, there's some degree of standardization around EVMs and they talk to each other and it's easier to transfer assets from one thing and the address formats are the same and so forth. And that can be a good thing, but there's also limitations and there's things that uh, the move-based networks have that others don't have or ones that are tied to a particular social media app or ones that have other types of things. So we have no intention of doing that. But, you know, hey, if you look at where standardization is, EVM is just what the ecosystem has has to date. So that has certain advantages. And there are certainly trade-offs that come with that as well. I make my bread and butter by covering the Neo blockchain ecosystem on a day-to-day basis. So I've been knee-deep in a non-EVM ecosystem since 2018. So I'm always just fascinated to hear insights that others have as it comes to the robustness of potential uses outside of EVM. So I appreciate the answer. Yeah, there are lots of kind of EVM on non-EVM chains or ones that are doing that or fulfilling interoperability. I mean, ultimately, it's all software. It should be able to talk to each other. If you can do something in a Turing-complete language in Solidity, you should be able to do it and move ultimately. It may take some time and effort to get there, but that's the world we live in. Yeah. And so we haven't really gotten to this yet. And I feel like it might be a disservice to the listeners because you have mentioned these colors and when a mentor mints that there's a color-based system. So can you just share a little bit more about the color trace algorithm and what that is and how it's used to help identify stablecoin mentors? Absolutely. So this is a fundamental mathematical challenge that has existed for some time. And the issue is as follows. If you want to have multiple different colors of a token and you want to keep track of who has what color, naturally, if you're going to be doing that, if you have a wallet and you get some tokens from Curve and other ones from 
BitGet and other ones from Wintermute, you know, you've got to keep track of what could be fungible tokens, but you've got three separate colors in your wallet. You know, you send a payment to Alice and then Alice has some colors in her token and she sends one to Bob and you rapidly get to a situation where you can have an exponential increase in the number of colors in any particular wallet. And just practically thinking about how do you deal with that with MetaMask or, or whatever, it's more of a fundamental mathematical problem of how do you keep track of this exponential increase in complexity. So at its core, Color Trace really solves that by actually not keeping track of colors in every wallet. So you don't end up with a wallet that has 100 different colors in it. What you end up with is your wallet takes the color of the first USDV that you get. And then in most cases, it just keeps that as its color. So if you have 100 USDV from Curve and I send you 10 USDV that is the sushi swap color, those 10 USDV will be recolored as the Curve color. But there will be an error, you know, a delta variable that the system keeps track of that even though you're only holding one color in your wallet, we're keeping track at a system-wide level of how many Curve and SushiSwap and Velodrome and so forth tokens are outstanding. And what that allows is ultimately what the minters really care about is when they go to claim their rewards, which they do on a pull basis and they can do periodically, they want to know that they're going to be able to get rewards based on the net amount of their color that they issued into the ecosystem. And uh, you can look at the white paper. There's some fancy math behind there, but that's really one of the core elements of this. That's what we licensed from Layer Zero and are the first coin to utilize here. Yeah, so I think it's a fascinating concept. And I'm just wondering if like, let's say I am a DeFi maximalist. I'm a decentralization maximalist and I don't want to touch any stable coins that were minted by a centralized entity. Does this color trace algorithm, the color trace methodology, does that allow me to only acquire USDV that was minted by Curve or by Sushi or by another decentralized entity? Or are we not there? Is that just not a way that the foundation envisions that USDV is accessible? Certainly all the data are there, right? The underlying data of how much is outstanding, how much is on chain ABC, how much is from color one, two, three. The colors are numbers, by the way. They're not blue and periwinkle and whatever, you know. So yeah, I mean, you can track that. And I'd say probably the best way, you can formally have only color X in your token or color three if you are getting your tokens originally from that. And, and largely speaking, your wallet will stay that color. But practically speaking, I think you want to think through it. They're, they're fungible, right? This is a fungible token. So one can be exchanged for the other. And, you know, I'd say if you don't want to deal with any centralized exchanges, then just trade on DEXs. That's probably a more effective way to put your money to work than to be looking at, hey, what is the particular color in my wallet, which is more of a system parameter used by the minters for tracking rewards. Got it. Got it. So like, let's say I have more of the sushi swap color in my wallet. Well, you would actually only exclusively have, you only have one color in your wallet at any time. When payment is sent from Alice to Bob, that USDV is recolored into whatever Bob's wallet is. Okay. And, and when it's recolored, does that mean that the USDV is sent from that color network? Or is it just on paper? It just says, okay, now this user's wallet has mostly sushi swap. So now when they sell or stake or whatever, it will only be done on sushi swap. 
No, no, it has no impact for the user. It's really only for the minters. And it's really sort of an accounting mechanism. You can think of it as sort of like an accounting memo or something like that, that is used at a system-wide level to track who minted what. And the thing that's really important for users is not necessarily the details behind that, but that it allows us to be more decentralized. It allows you to have not just, in fact, the verified USD Foundation is not a minter. We don't mint USDV. We enable others to do, and provided they can meet the appropriate compliance checks and so forth, we're happy to extend to more chains and more minters and more geographies and so forth. So it really fits with the underlying ethos that we're looking at. I mean, that's the thing that end users should take away. And we believe that ultimately it promotes a healthier ecosystem. You know, this our ecosystem is going to grow and become more scalable if everyone that's bringing users in is able to share the rewards of the underlying assets as opposed to just a couple big centralized private entities. And what are the rewards that a token minter gets? Do they receive network fees from users who swap those tokens? Do they receive network fees from users who mint the minted tokens? How exactly do they accrue rewards? Yeah, the underlying rewards are based on the STBT yield. So you can go to Matrix Ports homepage, see STBT. You know, most days, at least in this interest rate environment, it's yielding kind of the high 4%, low 5%. Again, it depends a little bit on a day-to-day basis. And those underlying rewards are split with the minter as well as then the network operator and so forth to cover the costs of maintaining the network. There's certainly other ways that minters can also make money generally, you know, on exchange fees and transfer fees and so forth, but that's not really at the USDB protocol level. That would be on the particular decks and so forth. As you know, there's all kinds of different rewards and many different types of tokens and so forth. And that's really something that is determined outside of strictly the scope of the USDB foundation. And when a minter mints a USDV token, do they have to distribute it into circulation or can they just kind of hold it? Yeah, sure. They can certainly hold it. They can hold it themselves. They can distribute it. And the main thing is that when they do distribute it, you know, provided that it's not immediately redeemed or picked up by another minter that does something with it, they'll continue to earn a share of the underlying yield from the collateral. Awesome. Wrapping up the conversation, I want to zoom back out and look at next steps. So. What is the Verified USD Foundation's vision for establishing better connections between centralized entities, CFI and DeFi? Well, we think both are really critical. The centralized entities are often the ones that are regulated virtual asset service providers. They're the ones that are kind of on the front lines of the fiat to crypto exchange. They are often the ones that have more of a regulatory obligation. And that's critical you need to go through those entities to exchange your underlying fiat into the digital world. And there's also a lot of unique opportunities that you see in the DEX space and in the decentralized finance space and so forth that is something that you need to get there to begin with in order to do that. So we want to partner with both. It's hard for me to say which one is going to have the biggest color or whatever. And I'd say the biggest thing is not necessarily sex or DEX, but really where this can go in terms of using stablecoins generally and USDV in particular as real money, as a store of value in terms of buying real world assets with it and using this. So we'll see how things go in Argentina in the next week and looking at other markets around the world as well. But excited to have strong growth with our initial partners, our initial chains, but expect to see a lot more on the decentralized and centralized exchange in the near term and over the slightly longer term 
a lot of growth in payments, emerging markets, and other areas that have a lot of excitement too. Are there any kind of significant challenges that you anticipate the foundation might run into as you guys continue to scale at an international and also a technological manner? Yes. If you've been around the space long enough, you need to expect the unexpected. I mean, just in the last year, I mean, I've had to deal with the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank, and we had a run-in with some North Korean hackers and one of our partners and regulatory challenges and everything. Obviously, there's been FTX and Terra Luna and CZ's issues that he's had to deal with and so forth. But the industry has been able to roll with it. And I think you develop a thick skin working here. And having been around the block a few times, I think we're ready for it. And we're excited to work with different chains, work with different regulators, with good partners, and take this forward. So we're ready for whatever comes next. Well, you heard it here, folks. This team is ready to double down and build. Matthew, if someone's interested in keeping up to date with you or what the Verified USD Foundation is working on, what are the best ways that they can do so? Yeah, usdv.money is our main site. You can find links there to Twitter, white papers, you know, or Gitbook, other areas. So yeah, usdv.money is the best place to start. Awesome. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. It was fascinating to have this conversation. Flew by very quickly. Really looking forward to following the progress that USDV makes and the Verified USD Foundation makes in the future. So just want to thank you so much for coming on the Smart Economy Podcast to share this really innovative and cool project you're working on. All right. Thank you very much, Dylan. Cheers. Bye. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was fascinating to hear Matthew's insights from building in blockchain since 2015 and how he aims to foster the growth of USDV in various different geographic regions across the globe. It was also fascinating to learn more about the relationships that Matthew has built inside of infrastructure networks and how that's helped the verified USD Foundation grow the footprint of the USDV stablecoin. And I really enjoyed learning more about how the real-world assets determine the yield that USDV minters earn. To keep up to date with the Smart Economy Podcast, head over to www.smarteconomypodcast.com. And if you like the guests we've had on the show, please consider showing support for the show by rating and reviewing these episodes. Each episode that gets rated or reviewed really helps put us in front of other listeners so they can discover the guests that we've had on the podcast. And of course, if you're a NEO token holder, please don't hesitate for voting for NEO News Today as your council representative. We've proudly been serving the NEO ecosystem since 2017 and will continue to do so by using portions of our council rewards to invest directly back in the ecosystem growth initiatives. With all that said, Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast, and we look forward to catching you next time.